Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, how did the UK's media coverage of Brexit influence the outcome of the referendum? And closer to home, how has our media coverage of the federal election changed how we're going to vote? Plus, Impact Journalism Day was this week. We explain what it was and if it should be a thing. Joining me in the studio, author and Sydney Morning Herald columnist Andrew P. Street. Hello, Andrew. Top of the day. Sitting next to him is Telegraph UK's Oz correspondent, Jonathan Perlman. Top of the day to you. And joining <laughs> us on the line, BuzzFeed's political editor, Mark Stefano. G'day, Marcus. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. We're live tweeting and you can put your questions to the panel too. Our Twitter handle is AU. Brexit. It's been world news for weeks now, so it hardly needs an introduction Maybe it does. I don't know. Just hours after the polls closed, a Washington Post article claimed Brits were frantically Googling what is the EU. It was later revealed that the Post article was a bit hysterical, but still, it does make you think about the role of the media. Is it only to inform us about what's going on, or is it the media's responsibility to inform people how the world works? Andrew? Well, the short answer is both. I don't think that that the media can be necessarily blamed for not having put the the case across necessarily because one of the big problems that I think uh, media faces is the idea of being seen to be political. And with something like Brexit or... I mean, we see it with things like climate change here. Things that are kind of objectively facts are very confrontational there's some sort of political agenda here and and so i i think one can be confused for the other very very easily is is the the short take on that i mean everything about brexit at the moment is still sort of difficult to comprehend um and it's hard to get a sense at this stage i think of exactly what role the media played it just seems to have been a, a sort of perfect storm of a whole lot of factors including including you know the the split in the tories um, the strong campaign by Boris Johnson, fairly weak campaign by David Cameron. The lion's share of international leaders and economic experts sided with the Remain campaign. And if the spread of informed opinion isn't balanced, is it still reasonable for the broadcaster to represent the debate as if it is balanced? Yeah, I mean, that comes up with climate change as well, doesn't it? It's a difficult one for the media, and the media loves to present conflict and debate. I think one difficulty with this was um, that th- there were economic arguments involved um, and there is, and I think probably correctly, a, f- a fair amount of mistrust of economic punditry, um, especially following the financial crisis. Mm. So I think that's led to, I mean, there's already a lot of mistrust of politicians, but I think following the financial crisis, there's a lot of mistrust of, um, of you know, when, when the British Treasury comes out um, you know, with strong warnings, perhaps before the financial crisis, there would have been a lot of trust in that and, and, and that would have frightened people. Um, but now there just seems to be so much scepticism um, that those arguments were, just weren't winning over. Debates are just far more interesting. I mean, they, you know, conflict and, and drama is, is... It gets attention. I mean... Like, I, I remember back when the, the Large Hadron Collider was, was about to be switched on for the first time, and there were all of those stories being 
uh, being circulated around the media about how this is going to create mini black holes and it's going to be the end of the world and blah, 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 blah. And exactly one physicist who wasn't actually a physicist, he was a statistician who didn't really understand physics, was the guy who was saying all of this. And he was very, very big on this. But he was great. You know, he, Visually, he was great. He was very entertaining. He said crazy things very loudly. And this was kind of held up as some sort of balance against this vast, vast, vast amount of every other physicist on the planet going, no, no, that's, we're, we're, no, we're orders of magnitude below the energies we would need to even make something explode properly, much less, you know, rend the very fabric of space. So I think that, that there's also that kind of temptation when you can get kind of dueling experts because it's just much more entertaining, yeah, well, even if at least one of those experts is mad. Well, I think I think we saw the line, we don't want to hear from experts anymore. We don't want to hear from people with acronyms after their name. Um, Mark, bringing you in here, you're the editor of a new politics uh, website. What is it that you think draws people in? Well, I think that the first thing to do with the Brexit coverage, though, was just institutional failure. And, and, and that's what we're seeing more and more. Um, it happened in the U.S. with the Republican Party, and it's kind of happened um, in the U.K. with the with the Conservative Party. Um, the institution itself made it very clear what they wanted, and and the people said no, um, that's not actually what we want. And the media itself can sometimes reflect this. Well, the media itself, being quite often it's a large institution, um, can sometimes uh, fall some to the failure. And I think that what we did see with the Brexit. Um, this is a really great quote um, that I, I, I heard the other day, which was, um, when you listen, it depends who you hear. And I think that that's what the problem with all these big newspapers and media outlets. They tried to listen to the people, but they weren't hearing the right voices um, and they weren't going to the right people to actually get their impressions of what was happening. Um, that's why the betting markets were wrong, why often some of the polling was wrong. It's the reason why, obviously, also the UK general election last year, the polling was way off. Um, and so what we're finding and what we're seeing hasn't really happened here in Australia, but it's definitely happening in the US and the UK. It's this sort of large-scale, widespread institutional failure because um, when you do put up the walls around yourself and you try to um, not listen and, not, and try to actually you know, jump in your ivory tower and, 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 and throw down from above um, your reporting or what you think is what the people want, you, you miss and you forget that the people down below have the ability to vote and, and make their voices known. So I, I think that that's the one thing I'm... Uh, one thing as a as a political reporter, I'm really, really, really sort of taking note of this year with Trump and now Brexit is that just really when you do listen, who are the people that you're listening to? And I, I think that as reporters and journalists, we need to have that at the back of the mind. Well, the Telegraph changed tack actually to back the Leave campaign when the polls of subscribers showed that 69% of them wanted out. So is giving an audience what they want, in this case, good form? I mean, I think the Telegraph, given its leanings, would have you would have expected it to um, to back Brexit. Um, uh, but um, I mean, I don't think so. I, I think that um, I think that that the media um, that that media outlets should should have their own principles um, which guide them, and they don't necessarily have to reflect the 
the audiences or, or readerships. I mean, it's quite hard for um, for media outlets to know exactly what their readers or audiences think. Um, Telegraph might have subscribed, you know, polled its subscribers, but there's a lot. I, th- I think there were the, the nineteen thousand or so respondents to that. I mean, the Telegraph's got a much bigger readership. Um, you know, I think if 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 outlets start trying to kind of understand exactly what their readers' sentiments are and following them um, and follow them, I I think it's kind of mistaken. Firstly, because the me- you know media should just have its own guiding principles. But secondly, I think it's going to be very difficult to do because they're not going to know exactly what what people think. Talking about guiding principles and editorial lines, I thought it interesting that Rupert Murdoch's stable of papers didn't actually all toe the same line. So The Sun, his tabloid, was for Leave, and The Times was for Remain. Did you find that interesting? Yeah, and I, I mean, I was also surprised to see The Mail and The Mail on Sunday splitting. Um Murdoch's papers have done that in Australia before. Um, and, you know, there is some degree of independence. Um, I'm, I'm sure most of Murdoch's editors, and certainly in this case Murdoch would have had a strong hand, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure the editors check in check in with him. Um, yeah, in this case I was surprised. I mean, I would have thought that the time, given, given the coverage um, in the Times and Sunday Times, I would have thought both of them would have would have backed Brexit. Can I just jump in and say that, um, I mean, I think that the uh, role of, of newspaper and, and, and news outlet media endorsement is sort of on its way out. Like, you know, BuzzFeed, we're relatively new, so we um, are sort of making up some of these rules as we go along, but we don't do it. And I think that sometimes when you do see news outlets start endorsing um, either side. Oh, it, it just it, it, it can sometimes muddy, muddy the waters of the readers that are out there. Like, I think that sometimes people forget that, you know, if there are journalists at the UK Telegraph, uh, there were a lot of them that would probably be Remainers. And there's a, a lot of journalists at the, the, the Daily Mail and that, that would have had a range of views. And it's not always the same, um, uh, same editorial line that runs throughout. And I, I have a lot of great friends from Murdoch Papers who... Do not subscribe to you know right wing views, which is, is is a really easy cheap shot to make. So I think that what we'll see in the next couple of decades is the role of the endorsement from a media outlet start falling away because I think that um, they really aren't as powerful as they used to be anyway. Commentators have said that at the heart of it, Brexit was about whether people thought multiculturalism was a good thing or a bad thing. However, the British tabloids didn't mount the all-out fear-mongering campaigns against migrants that we might have expected. The tabloid's focus instead was trained on the bloated, corrupt EU and vagaries like national sovereignty, honour and heritage, which you could argue are veiled xenophobia. With a plebiscite on marriage equality on the cards here in Australia, how sensitive do you think the media will be when the heat of the debate rises? Will they hold back or is this an opportunity to get down and dirty i genuinely don't know i'm th- this is one of the things that i'm i'm kind of hoping that brexit is going to influence the media to be maybe a little bit more circumspect because the the big danger i mean what what certainly what we've seen in the fallout of brexit has been a vast 
uh, increase in the reports of racially motivated attacks, and and you know there's videos floating around on on the internet of, of people being abused on public transport, which of course never happens here. Obviously, that's <laughs> yeah, we've never seen that. Um, and and of course the the assassination of Joe Cox, the Labour MP who was who was stabbed to death by a a, a man sort of screaming anti-immigration slogans, basically. And that's the thing that worries me about a plebiscite here is that it's very, very easy to stoke those kind of emotions. I mean, that, that it's very persuasive. And, and particularly with a plebiscite, I mean, with, in the case of, of Brexit, there were pretty strong arguments either way that could be made. They weren't necessarily the ones that anybody made. But, you know, you could argue that the EU is a bloated bureaucracy and that that, they need, that needs to be looked at. Or you could look at that the, the UK operating independently without access to the to the common market is going to be economically disastrous. You know, that, that's a conversation you could have. That's not a conversation that seemed to be had to any vast degree. It seemed to be either England for the English or sort of a much more multicultural approach. With the same-sex marriage plebiscite, there's not that strong an argument against it. And, you know, obviously I have certain biases in this direction. But, you know, it's really very difficult to come up with an argument against ex- extending civil rights to everybody beyond, you know, somebody saying, I just don't like gay people and I don't want them to be happy. So I feel like those kind of arguments are the ones that are going to get brought up, it, that it is going to be vague fears and and culture war sort of stuff, which is very dangerous, I think. And that, that, that I think, is the is going to be at the forefront of the media's mind in terms of that we, you know, the last thing anybody wants is for Penny Wong to be stabbed by some, you know, violent nut job. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello, and I'm speaking with Andrew P. Street, Jonathan Perlman, and Mark Stefano. It's election season. We had all the set pieces for this to be something special, an opposition leader on the rise from the brink of obscurity and unprecedented 56 parties in the running, and an unprecedented eight-week campaign. But the end is in sight, and it's been a bit of a fizzer. Maybe that's a good thing that the people who were in power haven't done anything too deeply embarrassing. Uh, it's expensive to send reporters along for the ride in the campaign bus. It's much cheaper and much easier to just rip a story from a competitor and put a little disclaimer note at the end of the article. But someone needs to be out there producing the original, and Mark Stefano is doing that. He's phoning in from the campaign trail. Mark, what's it like out there? Um, it's pretty crazy and pretty silly. Um, it's, you know, on, on the you're, you're constantly getting on and off buses and being herded like cattle into factories and shopping centres and forums and um, being told what the issue of the day is by minders and um, probably, and this is where I guess if we're we're talking about it being very expensive for media outlets to send um, things to people, it really is geared, the campaign trail is geared for for pitches. Um, So... Um, it's all about uh, making sure that you've got the vision for the six o'clock news um, when it comes to commercial media and making sure you've got the stills that will appear in the, in the news outlets the next day. So what we're finding as an online outlet is what can we do that really does break out um, and provide some, uh, some other sort of campaign coverage that is a bit different? So 
the problem being is that you spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on hotels and a charter plane to sort of follow around the Prime Minister. And he gives about six questions a day to the journalists in the press pack. Now, that's six opportunities. And if one or two of those are bad questions, you've got to wait another 24 hours for a crack of the Prime Minister. So sometimes when you see, you know, Sarah Ferguson doing an amazing job on Four Corners and everyone says, oh, why doesn't the travelling press pack do this? It's like, well, there's a very simple reason, and that's access. We get six questions a day. Sarah Ferguson had 20 minutes with either, either leader in a one-on-one. I'm not sort of suggesting that people in the press pack are at the quality of Sarah Ferguson, but that's not where all, these are all the issues that we're running into, and, and that's the reason why what BuzzFeed are doing is trying to figure out... Um, in an online environment where you don't have to file um, to TV, you don't have to file to newspapers, you just file into the internet directly, um, what is, is it valuable? Um, will the campaign trails as it exists now, you know, where there are two competing buses and we're going from city to city, will it exist at the next election? I've spoken to quite a few people who suggest it won't because it's just too expensive and some media outlets aren't getting enough out of it. So there are just so many issues at play, but that's a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on. You know, following BuzzFeed politics on Facebook, one thing I see is that, and I say this in the politest possible way, but you don't need the highest production quality video Mm. and stills. Yeah, what we're living in a world where your iPhone is is good enough um, to take a photo and put it at the head of the the article. And if you're talking about outlets who sit in offices and bash out stuff and have a a subscription to AAP photos um, and and the copy... um, that's okay, but I think that there's another generation of um, of news sites out there that actually do way worse, which is they take other people's stories and they rewrite them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not going to name names, but everyone knows who they are. And that's the problem is that when you've got an outlet like BuzzFeed that is investing thousands of dollars of sending journalists out on the trail, and, and, and what the worst thing is is that when you turn around and you see that the people that you're competing against, all they're doing is taking a Sydney Morning Herald or taking a Guardian or taking an Australian story, rewriting it, and then writing at the bottom, you know, um, that it was via someone else. I mean, it's just very frustrating that that's the way that digital journalism is headed. And I, I think that that's the thing we all as an industry need to put in You've got some artillery there when somebody comes out against you as being BuzzFeed, the arbiter of cats on the internet. You're yeah, actually out and, there on the front oh, line, look, create, like gathering know, the news. Totally. And look, I think that that's part of the reason why we do it. You know, one of the reasons why we do it is we think you've got to find value by getting out there. And it also pushes back against those, those people who do think that um, we're a side of cats and Kim Kardashian. But I, I think that, you know, I sat next to Mal Farr from news.com.au today at the press club and we had a big chat. He was saying, you know, Kim Kardashian pays my, pays my salary um, to write about politics. Of course it does. Um, and forever, in a day, the, the Telegraph, um, people used to pick up the UK Telegraph not for the amazing news on page four, five, and six. They picked it up because um, for the crossword, for the TV guide, for the real estate um, classifieds, there are always things that subsidise other, other parts of the industry, other parts of the, of the media outlet. I, I just get really frustrated, and I'm seeing it more and more on this campaign, is that the unwillingness of sending reporters to events when a when a when a uh, politician can turn up to an event and throw open to questions and there's one or two reporters they can get away with just so much more and you need to you need to have a press pack that is peppering um, politicians with questions and and questions that they don't want to hear and don't want to answer so mm-hmm. um, that's the challenge 
Andrew, the challenge for you has been finding those moments, those comedic moments for your podcast. You're also an original content producer. Uh, what have been the highlights on this election campaign for you? The highlights, I think, on, on any election campaign are always those those candidates and uh, and MPs and senators that you never ever ever hear from for the rest of the the rest of the cycle. The 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 backbenchers from sort of rural electorates whose you know whose parents were were MPs before them and who get absolutely flustered the second anybody puts a microphone in front of them. And so, again, exactly what, what Mark was saying, it's it's the, those beautiful moments when you see sort of actual journalists descend on people who not only don't want to see, don't want to answer questions, but have no idea how they're going to answer those questions. And there's been a few beautiful ones. I mean, John John Sue, the uh, the Cornwall Liberal candidate, who um, forgot to mention to anybody that he owned a brothel that was under investigation by the police. That that I think was one of the more beautiful moments of this this campaign. That that certainly spoke to me. I mean, you know, you can kind of laugh at at, at the the David Feeneys or the Chris Germans, the the, the people who turn up ready to go and then completely have no idea what they're talking about and leave their talking points on David Spears's desk but it's it's those little things of like should I have mentioned my brothel that I think really really sort of elevate the discourse there've been there've been a few um, moments of absent mindedness like that like the forgetting to mention a property that you own mm. yeah forgetting to mention a brothel <laughs> Well, they just slip the mind, don't they? <laughs> Another a constant is uh, polling results. They're kind of a big deal, but are they? Like, if you've got a landline and most of us don't, less than 10% of people who answer the phone actually go on to answer the questions. So why are they such a staple? Is it that everyone loves a horse race or is it that they just give you fodder for a story where there might not otherwise be one? I think they've been quite accurate in Australia um, in the past. Um, so they, you know, uh, unlike in Britain... Um, so I think they're still worth looking at, um, but th- you know they, you know, and and the polling um, firms have had to kind of change their techniques. I think because mm-hmm. of because of what you're talking about. Um, but um, but you know until proven otherwise, they still seem to seem to be relevant here. And obviously, they, there's a you know there's a feedback loop into the into the cycle. I mean, um, they clearly play a big role in the way that the media um, is interpreting the you know, the major candidates and how they're performing. So over in the UK, there's a no coverage rule for TV and radio in the 24 hours before an election. That's not just for advertisements like the media blackout that we're in at the moment here in Australia, but it's for the press. Um, Apparently, this is so that the media can't influence people's votes. But like, what about the rest of the campaign? I mean, does this make sense to anyone else in the studio? Not at all. No. (laughs) <laughs> it's super dumb. It's super dumb, and and, and I, it, it's sort of like our media laws in this country. They haven't caught, they haven't caught up with the internet. Um, they're trying, and they'll always be behind with the newest technological developments. But you know, li- liberal um, liberal people are big on Facebook advertising. They're going to keep going, and Labor are, are, are trying to push stuff onto you know onto Instagram and Snapchat and that sort of stuff. Um, and the Greens are going on Grinder in uh, yeah, which is amazing. Antiquated <laughs> mode with a lot like a media blackout is actually a little bit laughable. So I think that I mean I like the idea of um, a media blackout if it was enforced properly, but at the moment it's it's pretty funny. 
You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marcus Costello. I'm speaking with Andrew P. Street, Jonathan Perlman and Mark Stefano. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but we do have one more topic. This week, about 40 newspapers from around the world, including the Sydney Morning Herald, published stories about solutions to major problems for the fourth annual Impact Journalism Day. Each newspaper published two or three problem-solution stories from their country, and then all the articles were shared so that every newspaper had access to all 100 stories. Sydney Morning Herald's Lucy McCormack wrote about how climate change is disproportionately affecting Indigenous people and how Indigenous youth are lobbying the government for action. And Georgina Mitchell wrote about how Sleep Bus provides safe overnight accommodation for people sleeping rough. In the attention economy, doesn't fear rule? Like, when people are afraid, they follow a story. If it bleeds, it leads. Isn't isn't that the way it works, Jonathan? (laughs) I think so, um, unfortunately. But... um I mean, I, the thing I liked about the impact journalism, you know, the coverage that I saw was just some some some, some places covered that don't usually get mm. covered. I mean, some of the kind of just byline locations were interesting, and I thought that was that was good to see in sort of the traditional mainstream media, which don't cover a lot of those areas. Andrew, are you concerned that this is journalism perhaps getting a little too close to PR territory? Um, I don't know that it's necessarily PR. Uh, well, there's, I, I think there's there's it's kind of journalism as advocacy, which is a like I, I think that there are a lot of questions you can ask about that. But a lot of the social enterprise companies saw a massive mm. spike after these stories were published. So in that case, there was an opportunity to, to leverage this as publicity. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, that's true of of, of any any time that these kind of stories get into the mainstream. I mean, the, the, you you do see. A spike in in interest in sort of you know in environmental causes and stuff mm. like that as soon as you know the Great Barrier Reef story started to break around the world. So it's um, I I think it's an it's an interesting trend and I th- and I think it kind of counters a lot of the accusations that get made against journalism of kind of well you're a bunch of vultures who are sort of picking off the corpse of other people's misery mm. and um and and I think it does get to that idea of of trying to inform and trying to uh, to educate the uh, the public as well as just merely report on who's yelling at who. Well, I like to think that's exactly what we are trying to do exactly. here tonight. That's <laughs> it from us on For the State. Thank you very much to my guests, Andrew P. Street, Jonathan Perlman, and on the line, Mark Stefano. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. Up next is On the Money. My name is Marcus Costello. You can catch us the same time next week. 